Welcome back, folks, to Unstandardized English. I am your host, JPB Gerald. Uh, this one is uh, the first time we've had a return guest. This is Dr. B.J. Ramjatan, who was all the way back on our third episode talking to us about accents, a topic that has come through a lot of our episodes and on which he has really interesting things to say. But today we're talking about uh, one of the results of accent-based racism and linguicism, uh, the concept of employability. And we're going to talk about how that impacts things along racial lines, as we always do. Enjoy. Welcome back to Unstandardized English, folks. Uh, I am JPB Gerald, and I have my first return guest of the season, Dr. E.J. Ramjitan, once again with us to talk about some of his specialties. Today, we're going to talk about the concept of employability and all of the things that are related to it and how it cuts, as all of these topics do, across racial and discriminatory lines. So, B.J., thank you for joining us once again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be your first returning returning guest. So. Yeah, I've been I've been trying to get my wife on, and it hasn't happened yet. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, someday. Um, so yeah, we um, talk a little bit about employability. Um, I find this, you know, one of the things that I do in my work um, is I do employee training, right? Uh, so what I do isn't job training like someone who's not working trying to get a job, but someone who has a job and the managers decide you need to learn these skills to move on, move up, do your job better, whatever. Um, and so although the word isn't really used, the concept and the construct is absolutely a part of what I do because the idea behind a lot of what the classes that I have to teach are is if you don't learn this, you will be seen as less employable by this agency that they work for. So the concept is really relevant to what I do in, in my work currently. So that's, uh, that's one reason why I wanted to talk about it and also because I think that it's related to a lot of things that people in the field are talking about, but don't always talk to directly about. So, um, so first off, what are some of the ways in which the construction of employability is racialized, or even more broadly, what are some of the what are some of the facets of the construction of employability that you have noticed overall? Um, yeah, so I guess maybe off the top of my head, I can think of three things. So maybe the first thing is thinking about how employability is something that we embody, right? So mm -hmm. um, in terms of the aesthetic qualities of workers, for example, like how they look, how they sound like, right? These things um, can, are obviously racialized in, in different types of fields. So um, one example, like from my past research with um, English language teaching, which you could appreciate, is this idea of how whiteness, embodied whiteness, is something that's deemed employable in the context of ELT, right? So um, because um, if you identify as white, white or you're perceived as white, you're presumed to be this sort of native English speaker, and that makes you more employable than a so-called non-native speaking 
non-white uh, teacher. Um, I know in my past research, like I had racialized teachers who identified as so-called native English speakers, but because they didn't look like the ideal white speaker of English, right, they were deemed less employable than maybe their white peers who, whose English weren't, wasn't as strong as, as uh, these racialized teachers. So uh, we can think of embodiment in terms of appearance in that way. Um, embodiment in terms of sound. So my, my current research with accent is all about if you don't sound the right way, right, for a job, you're perceived as maybe less in, intelligent, less trustworthy, less credible, etc. And that's racialized because obviously um, accents that are tied to racialized groups are perceived as less intelligible, um, less trustworthy, etc. than uh, so-called white accents. So we see um, employability racialized in that way in terms of aesthetics, right? So sights and sounds. Um, I guess another way we can think of employability and racialization is, terms, is in terms of maybe resources and time. So um, yeah, if you're like a white upper middle class kid living in the suburbs, right? You're, you have these sort of personal and, and, and public resources, right? To sort of make yourselves more, make yourself more employable than maybe a so-called like a, rather than maybe like racialized youth in other parts of, of a city or et cetera like that. Um, so in that sense, right, um, the white kid has, uh, can, when we talk about employability being like um, something that you're able to accomplish on your own in terms of like upgrading your skills, maybe furthering your education, learning a new language, right? So sometimes some racial groups have more opportunities, right, to, to sort of upgrade themselves and make themselves more employable than other groups. Um, so that's one, that's another example. Um, and what's another, yeah, I guess one final way is in terms of, of not rocking the boat, right? So when you think about employability in terms of like these skills that are desirable for the job market, like these so-called soft skills, like, um, like being adaptable and like being a team player and stuff, and organizations might recruit people who are not going to rock the boat, right? So if, if I'm working in a racist organization, right, and I, I take notice of these racist practices and stuff, all of these sort of policies that are happening, um, if I sort of keep quiet and just do my work, right, that's perceived as something more desirable for employers, right? So they don't want to, employers don't want to hire someone who's going to sort of cause trouble. So um, yeah, I guess those are some of the, yeah, a few ways I think about employability and sort of racialization. So I want, I want to probe a little bit on, on some of those things. Um, I think about, especially the last one, uh, mm -hmm. I think about how um, in a racist organization, which of course is not going to believe that it's racist, um, but the systems and patterns are set up such that racism is reified constantly. But in 2020, you know, they have to be able to put someone who's not white on the brochure, right? Mm -hmm. Or the website or whatever, if they want outside, you know, uh, attention or something like that. Uh, so they know they have to hire some people who look different, who have a different aesthetic, but mm -hmm. they don't really want to change their practices, right? 
this is not something that they, I mean, they, they, they don't really internalize this very, you know, they can't articulate this themselves, but they know, all they know is we need to hire one of them. So when they think about employability, they want someone who has, since we, you use the term soft skills, they want someone who has certain quote unquote hard skills, right? First, mm -hmm. right? They want them to have I don't know what, depending on what type of business it is, if they need to, to be able to use the use computer program, they need to be able to do that, right? But if it all it were, were a list of hard skills, then there would be no interviews or anything like that. Um, so they really do the determining factor on the quote unquote soft skills. And uh, there, what they're looking for is often someone who visibly or aesthetically represents something outside of whiteness without truly embodying something different from whiteness. That's so, what, you know, that they're looking for something with where the edges are, are sanded off, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so they can, they, they can say, look, look at this United Colors of Benetton uh, ad that we have. And as soon as that person brings up what they see as a problem, well, that's, that's, that's not. We don't, we don't need to deal with that. I, I mean, my, my wife actually was telling me that tomorrow, I think, yes, tomorrow, um, I'm recording this in January, but so tomorrow she's has a uh, diversity and inclusion training something at her job because something happened that she didn't really hear about, but something happened. And so uh, they sent out a survey in advance to say, have you had any of these experiences? And most of the people said, no, everything's fine. But then what kind of data, it's anonymous, right? But what kind of data really is it? Because ultimately it's your employer. People who have worked in an agency where that kind of problem happens, are they really going to speak up and say, oh yeah, we have tons of racism problems here. You know, <laughs> even if it's anonymous, there's not that many people working there. <laughs> so uh, yeah, when you think about that, you know, I think about the job training programs that I've been involved in uh, and that I've worked with, that I've heard of. And when I'm working with people who are people of color, who are marginalized groups, I realized when I was younger and I was working in these things or when I learned about these things, you know, you're, you're trying to tell them without telling them directly, like, look, they're not going to hire you if, you if you present a certain way. Um, if all... Because if all it was is just gaining "quote unquote" hard skills, it wouldn't be that much of an industry in itself. Mm -hmm. So that makes a lot of sense, the, especially the last thing that you said, because I think that that's something that is a really big problem in employment industries. Yeah. Um, well, I think it. Yeah, go ahead. Oh no, sorry. Yeah. Well, I just like this whole thing about like you brought up like hard skills and soft skills, like a lot, a lot of these industries, the reason why we have soft skills too is because of the sort of saturation of the job market and, and many types of fields, right? So a way, way to distinguish yourself like you, like you kind of mentioned was like you have through these soft skills. Um, I was like part of my dissertation research, I was reading about like le different types of language work and it was interesting there was a study of like uh, South Korean English language interpreters, right? And because there's such a saturation of the job market there, the way that interpreters sort of distinguish themselves from, from others is through uh, making themselves more beautiful, right? So they would do plastic surgery and like 
dress up and stuff like that. And so a lot of the times when we teach these self, like our self presentation, like different facets of that, like a lot of the time is just is not has nothing to do with the actual work, right? It's just to make us more employable to get our foot in the door, right? So it's not when we teach like soft skills and stuff like that, it's not something that's at least for me, it's not something that's um, needed for a job, right? It's more often just to get the job. And then you can yeah, do your work after that. Yeah, I think that the um, the soft skills are, are really important for interview process and they're really important for the downtime at work. You know, mm -hmm. when you're just getting to know people and speaking to people. And often that can be the difference between success and the job and not because ultimately, Hard skills are very important depending on the industry and what your role is, but like generally speaking, you can have those skills. Those skills can be gained, they can be developed. Like if you come into a job and you need to learn a program, you can learn a program. But the quote unquote soft skills like that, they're amorphous and they can always say, well, yeah. it wasn't a fit, right? And, and the fit will be based on like whatever they say is not a fit. They're talking about that. They're not just, they're not saying, well, you don't know how to use Excel. Well, they, they would say that if that was the problem, you know, <laughs> like, and because if, if, it, if it's really just a hard skill issue, then no one's going to argue with someone not getting a job because of that. So, yeah. um, I mean, I, I want to do a whole episode on the concept of cultural fit at some point anyway, because <laughs> what is, what does that mean? But <laughs> uh, the two jobs ago, I, uh, remember that I was, see now I'm just saying things that, that are anecdotes that I, I can't prove, but whatever. Um, I remember they brought someone in for an interview, black man, and I don't, and he, it was, um, you know, he didn't get the job. And I remember the managers talking about him. I was not in the interview and saying, you know, he just wasn't the right fit. You know, he wasn't the right fit. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. He seemed kind of uncomfortable the whole time he was there. <laughs> but, but like maybe they were projecting a discomfort with him and he knew it. And because, you know, that's the thing when you're in these positions, is you can tell people are uncomfortable with you and you can't make them comfortable with you. Um, the, uh, so we've talked a little bit about the employability. And we've, we mentioned in setting up this episode how it was sort of related to the concept of what's professional. So where do you see, I know that there is a difference in the definition, but where do you see the difference between what's classified as um, employability and what's classified as professionalism? Because they're not quite the same thing, but they have a lot of things in common. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I guess you can think of employability maybe in terms of like um, these gatekeeping encounters. So like in a job interview, right? Employability is something that's taken into account. Professional for me at least is something that you display while on the job. Um, so uh, when we think about like professional skills and what's considered professional, um, a lot of the times like in these organizations, the un the sort of unstated cultural norms are based on the sort of figure of a sort of white male, middle class, native English speaking, heterosexual male sort of archetype, right? So uh, when, when we're talking about acting professionally or not acting professionally, it's more about how are you kind of um, 
aligning with or sort of distancing yourself away from this figure um, in terms of professional? I um, professional. I've heard people. I mean, obviously, I know what it's what's said in articles and so forth. But from what I've, the way people use that word is so interesting to me because I feel like people use it. Employability. I agree with you. Is much more about the entrance point, you know, mm-hmm. because once you're employed, employability doesn't matter that much. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of like if you master employability, then it's the professionalism that keeps you in the job and helps you progress through the job and so on and so mm-hmm. forth, more so than than hard skill or whatever. Now, but I feel like, like you said with the gatekeeping, um, I remember I had a coworker who, who was also a student, just like I am. And um, she was annoyed because we were, we, I shouldn't get this so specific, but she was annoyed. But we're, we go to the same school, uh, and she was annoyed that the program, like, was not organized. For her. We're not in the same program, same school, but uh, and she was like, "I am a working professional." It was was her way of saying like, "I can't believe that they're being so disorganized." So this idea that professionalism is that that's how that's that's how the construct comes off to her right it's a mm-hmm. level of organization and so on and so forth um and i remember i had a boss seven years i guess yeah seven years ago now and that was a job that it was a, one of for profit in language schools and they didn't treat people well very like i worked 19 hours a week just because if you work 20 hours a week you got benefits so <laughs> Uh, you know, United States, but, um, I eventually, like I had to get a job that paid my bills. So I got it. And like that place, like I had to quit pretty suddenly. And then she told me, um, you know, next job you get, make sure you act more professional in, and I'm just like, what professional in that sense meant, you know, the way these words are used is like you are differing from the norm is mm-hmm. the way that professionalism is being used, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And employability is that, but it's much more like, can you mold yourself to the norm? Do you, do you see what I'm trying to say? As, as Like they're very yeah. closely related, but like employability is like, you have to sort of be more of a chameleon at the beginning to get there and then when you're in the job, it's how close you are to an established norm. And those established norms have several archetypes in common, as you mentioned, but they're slightly different in each industry, company, whatever. Because if you were at a place that actually treated their workers better than that place where I worked, the fact that I really had to suddenly get a new job and I couldn't pay my bills would not have occurred. <laughs> so like, I wouldn't have had to do such a thing. People quit there all the time because of that nonsense. Uh, at my current job, that wouldn't that like sometimes like we had a coworker who quit in December suddenly, and he wasn't being like abused or anything. So uh-huh. in that sense, I kind of agreed that was a little bit unprofessional. <laughs> like he just like <laughs> he left for Christmas and didn't come back. <laughs> uh, like I was like, ah, dude, that's not great, man. Um, but like in an in an organization where the workers aren't treated with professionalism, mm-hmm. like like using the word in, intentionally, then I understand that 
you can't expect them to treat you back with some like, oh, I'll give you a nine weeks notice and you won't give me a paycheck. Um, mm-hmm. So in a way, professionalism, I think, is, is, is kind of a, an understanding. It's like an agreement, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the problem is people define it so differently that it becomes a gatekeeping thing where it doesn't, doesn't need to, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the way I see it. Um, well, it's, it's interesting because like, based on what you're saying, like there are, there are multiple types of definitions of professionalism within an organization, right? But mm-hmm. Right, depending like if you're just a regular worker, right, your your notion of professionalism isn't going to be regarded as sort of the norm throughout the organization. So there's sort of these hegemonic definitions, right? So depending on your place in the organization, whose notions of professionalism get valued, right? Mm-hmm. Is that something we have to consider? I guess going back to that point about employability and professionalism, I think you're right in saying like employability is, is like, a, is a process. You have to start working with employability, right? In the backstage, like before you enter an organization and then it becomes more about professionalism and maintaining that your, your place in that organization. But I think one thing to, to add to, to your point is that how in certain types of workplaces, sometimes you can't always have your own, your own, um, definition or practice your own definition of professional. So I'm thinking about like um, just a weird example, the fashion modeling industry. So in that industry, right, we know like um, embodied whiteness, once again, is sort of the the ideal norm, the the pinnacle of beauty, right? And so if you're uh, particularly like a black, black models, for example, right, they have to sort of whiten themselves in a way because that's what's that's what's marketable. That's what's going to give you, give them a job in the, in the fashion modeling industry, right? So even if they have certain beauty standards for themselves, right, to get that sort of next contract, they have to sort of abandon them and kind of do what's required of employers and stuff like that. So sometimes the workplace context can constrain how we actually define and, and sort of practice our own notions of professionalism. Yeah, um, I think about like how it, it professionalism, it, it's often, um, if you are completely disinterested in a certain topic, but it's very common to discuss that topic at work, and you make a point of just showing your disinterest that if you were just out with people and you just weren't interested, that'd be one thing, but at work, like if you don't join in, that's seen, you know, that's classified, oh, this person is not joining in the discussion and therefore this is unprofessional you know um so like you, you do have to act differently um in yeah and, and the thing is every workplace is different because some places you just wouldn't care um <laughs> and that's one of the things that's, that's difficult about it is that every workplace not not only every industry but every workplace within an industry has its own set of professional norms you know and um that the ability to anticipate the fact that the norms will be different is kind of what employability is related to. So like just, just sort of being ready for the fact that professionalism is, is, is a varying construct is in a way some of the employability. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it means like it goes back to sort of like this, we're, anyway, we're living in a capitalist economy, right? And sort of this neoliberal 
ideologies that one of the neoliberal ideologies we have to sort of embrace is sort of this flexible worker, right? So it's always about becoming more employable for different workplace contexts, right? So yeah, yeah the, agree. one of the things that um, I was before I got more focused on you know language and race and all the things that I spend my time on the internet talking about. Um, years ago, not years ago, not like 30 years ago, like four years ago, um, I was just, I was starting to itch to learn more, you know, and um, one of the things I got really hyped on was lifelong learning, as they call it, right, lifelong, well, lifelong, oh, it was be lifelong learning. Now, broadly speaking, there's nothing wrong with that, right, I mean, you want to learn, I'm an adult, but, you know, um, and then, uh, as I've gotten more into the research, again, the name is fine, but what they really mean is that, like, you need to keep gaining certain skills to prove that you are worthwhile in the economy. And if you don't do, do that, you will become obsoleted. And if you become obsoleted, then it is acceptable to discard you, right? The, uh, I remember when I was in college, I, I didn't have a driver's license. And I have one now, but I didn't have a driver's license because I live in New York, where we I need one for. Um, and I had a friend and I told him I didn't have one. He said, that's almost like a disability. Now, it's not, but uh, I thought about that and I realized I was reading some research about disability for a class that I'm taking, and um, the concept, the construct of disability wasn't what it is now until the last couple hundred years, right? Because if you had some role in society, you know, maybe you couldn't walk, but you could take care of children, whatever it was. Like, you were not discarded the way that we tend to discard people who are not able-bodied now. But when it got to a more capitalist society, you know, in like the 18th century or so, it started to get a lot more, you know, especially after industrialization, it started to get a lot more like, well, you can't bring in the money, so you're not worthwhile. Now, I am not saying this to position myself as though I'm disabled. I, I, I mean this in the sense that uh, this whole concept of lifelong learning, it sounds good, but the way it's employed and the, the way that it's constructed uh, is to make it so that as, as soon as you fall behind, you will be discarded, right? And the concept of disability, where people are obviously pushing back against it now, and it's great, but if we don't win this battle, like disability is going to keep expanding in construction to just people who don't have certain skills, um, that are going to keep being created and created and created. And, uh, mm -hmm. You know, now I, I, I go, not often, but like once a year, I go back to my college and what the kids are learning there. I'm just like, I did anything. <laughs> like, like, like the English majors, like, yes, I, you know, I, I do my English major work, but I'm also a computer science major. I'm like, how are you doing both of these things? <laughs> uh, it was, it was, I, you know, I graduated like 15 years ago. Like it wasn't that, that long ago, but uh, like, that's great for those kids. But like, what does it mean for someone who's, who's 
a little bit older and still wants to contribute, you know? So um, it's just to make everyone feel like they're a, a hamster, right? They're never going to get out of their little wheel um, until we change the way that our economy is built. Mm-hmm. Like the, the whole thing about capitalism isn't just the greedy pursuit of money because, hey, look, economies have been based on some version of that since however long. Right, like like greed in itself is not new. That's not that came that came before capitalism, right? Feudalism mm-hmm. wasn't not greedy. Uh, yeah. It's this idea that you must continue to expand or die. Mm-hmm. Like like that's what's so rapacious and destructive. It's not just being greedy, which is bad, but like pretty human. It's this, you must expand, you must expand. And um, so what's, when people talk about 40 years ago, employability was like a high school diploma. And Mm -hmm. and now, you know, you get a master's degree and you're making $17 an hour or something like that. Mm -hmm. I I was at um, a conference in New York six years ago, maybe. And the woman who was running a, a language program, prestigious language program at Columbia, uh, was saying that, nope, wasn't Columbia. It, it was near Columbia, but it was still a prestigious language program in Manhattan. And uh, she said that they paid their teachers some low amount, $21 an hour or something. And then mm-hmm. someone asked her, because it was an employer conference, Okay, if I have a master's degree, how much do I get paid? And she said twenty-two dollars. So <laughs> it was just—I mean, it was true. Uh, so yeah, oh, I said that was a whole bunch of things, but the whole—you know—just the whole point of just this ceaseless expansion, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and this—if you—if you—if you rest, you die. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, that's, oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, you say something. Oh, no, I just, yeah, th- well, yeah, just to, like, yeah, repeat what you said, just this whole idea of employability, right, it, and going back to this notion of racialization, right, there's, it's, um, yeah, because of our sort of our market economy and stuff like that, right, it, you're never good enough, right, so how this relates back to racialized people once again to that earlier point I made right in terms of like resources and time and stuff I'm also thinking about like my parents my immigrant parents so they were originally from Trinidad and so like for them right a lot of the times like the things that we tell people to to, uh, to make them employable like oh maybe spruce up your CV and maybe <laughs> um, like do some volunteer work right if you're sort of a recent migrant right in a country like Canada uh, where I'm from, like you don't really have the time and resources to sort of do these things, like to follow this advice, right? So it's kind of, it's kind of how, um, it's kind of, well, it is unfair, right? These these types of advice can only be um, adhered to by particular people, right? And most like, uh, and not really like these racialized, marginalized people. Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of it isn't just like, do you have the resources to to uh, to stay on top of what's employable? Because that's going to change every thirty minutes. Um, so 
it's not only that, but like people learn from their parents, right? Or their forebears, whatever. And uh, the people who are, you know, white folks, they have a higher chance of their parents being closer to the center of things. And so therefore, when things change, even if the parents don't change as quickly, they might be aware of what's changed when they're 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 able to give more uh, accurate advice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of things and like um, so. You know, and you think about you talk about sprucing up your resume or your CV. Like I know, but when I first started applying for jobs, uh, well, 13 years ago maybe longer, 15 years ago, maybe. And my dad said, you need to put an objective on your resume. And I'm like, but dad, we don't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> but, but like, it, 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 you know, things like that, I feel like a lot of parents, if they were in different circumstances, look, it didn't matter. I just didn't do it. But like, that advice wouldn't have been given to me. Um, I'm not actually asking you the question you said it would. Um, so if we're, like, we talk about this and we've talked about lots of ideas and concepts, but we live in the world, right? So this is always one of the things when we have these discussions is that we can say we want to, you know, uh, deliver liberation, but we still got to, you know, if we don't actually help the students who are in the room know what they need to know, get a job, then we're not actually helping anybody. <laughs> like, you know, we're making our points for, for the, by the time these things get out in the world and they get disseminated through the journals or in the podcasts and the other academics agree, and then it gets into someone's curriculum. And then 10 years from now, we made a difference okay, what about all the students who were in school in those 10 years, right? (laughs) You know, that's always the thing. So like, if I'm talking to a student or a young worker, who I guess would be a student in this case, and they come Mm -hmm. to my class and they, especially a language class, right? Mm -hmm. And they need to gain skills so they can get a job. Mm -hmm. How do we avoid problematizing their bodies, right? Their, what they're embodying and their hair and their culture and so forth, while also still providing useful instruction. Like, like how, how do we work that balance being? In your yeah, opinion. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't have any like genius answer for this, but I guess like one thing with employment training and like these types of language training and all these, yeah, et cetera and stuff like that. But um, I think like one thing that we don't do in these types of training is kind of um, teach, well, teach more skills, like critical thinking skills. Like we just teach like, um, like sort of these etiquette classes and like whatever language classes. We, we teach, okay, well, you just need to say this, act like this, dress like this. But we never teach like students how, how to question, right? Like what, what would they do like? I don't know what's the right, how to articulate this well, but like maybe like teaching students how to critically problem solve. So like um, if we if we had like a scenario 
where I said, okay, well, um, just say an employer is offering you a job, but you just have to change your hair, right? What would you do? Like, in that sense, you're not, you're not problematizing your students' bodies in the sense, but you're asking them to consider, okay, well, what are some things that you might have to deal with in the employment market, right? But even that is not always a, an, an ideal type of strategy because you're sort of reinforcing this idea that, okay, well, racism or any type of oppression is something that you're going to experience. Um, yeah, I realize it didn't make sense, <laughs> any sense with my answer, but it's basically this idea of like, how, why don't we teach students to question, right, while we're training them, right? Think about the world that they have to work in and kind of sort of figure out for themselves what are some strategies they can employ. That's easier than done. Yeah, well, so like the way I tell people, when I'm, when I'm in, because I've spoken, that same thing I told you about with the person and the, and the master's degree and the dollar and all that, I've spoken on the panel there a couple of times myself. It's just, they do the same event every year. And um, it's a, an event for teachers. So not like students who are taking language classes, but for English language teachers who are either in the master's program or they're underemployed or whatever. And they want to, you know, what should I do to get better jobs? So it's not quite the same audiences that I asked you about. But what I tell people when I'm on that panel, and every time I talk, people seem to laugh, and I don't know why they're laughing, because I'm just telling the truth. Like, I'm not trying to make jokes. <laughs> like, they're laughing because when I'm saying things that are different from everybody else. Anyway, um, I tell people, like, look, if you just need, like, to pay the bills, take the job. Like, what am I going to tell you, right? No. However, keep looking, right? Like, if, if, it's, a, if it's a job that you took out of desperation, they're gonna know you took it out of desperation, <laughs> and it's 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 not gonna be the job that you want long term. They're not gonna treat you like they're not gonna show you any loyalty. So there's no reason for you to show them loyalty beyond what we're now discussing beyond the professionalism that I do think you owe them to some extent, right? Like I, don't go in there and destroy the computer. Like that's stupid. It's not, <laughs> you know. But I think also. We say the same thing to the teachers. Like, this is like in the discussion I had with Parisa in, I guess it was November. Um, maybe it was October. I don't know when it was. Um, and like, if you work, if you if you're applying for a job in a place that wants you to completely hide everything about yourself, what's it going to be like to actually work? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. what, like, and, and I don't mean that we should tell our students that. I mean, that can be a class lesson. That could be right, that could be something they talk about, because this is a job training class, right? Or a program. You know, we say, all right, you applied for a job, you get there, and you're waiting for the interview, and there's some sign or some signal, because they're usually not that open about it, but you get some sense that everyone there is dressed in such a way that with the type of thing that you like to wear, even, even within the realm of professional dress, would be considered outlandish or uh, not welcomed. So you're gonna have to get a whole new wardrobe or something. Okay, fine. But like, what would it be like to have to present yourself very differently from the way that you authentically are? 
would that be okay? Would that be comfortable? And then so they can discuss it. They could say, you know what, I really wouldn't care. Fine. But it gets them to think about it. And then when they're in that situation, you know, they know what to say and what it would be like. That's, I mean, I say all these kinds of kind of things. I don't know what I'm actually do, but these are the ideas that I have when I, when I think about these things, you know? Yeah. Um, especially because like so much of the job training stuff is just, aside from like resumes and whatever, that there is a, a form to that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really just about like, how do you fit into the round hole as a square peg? Mm -hmm. yeah but then there's so then the, the the thing that complicates it though as you mentioned i believe in your article from was it this past article in 2019 or was it the one in 2015 about mm -hmm. uh the how it's it's also you also hear this from like racialized parents or educators or employers because you and there was some anecdote where you talked about how the, the students actually were requesting, um, you oh, know, okay. white teachers, right? It's like this, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of related to that idea. Was that this art? Was that ni the nineteen article or the fifteen article? Um, was it about inequality regimes? Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that one. Okay. And so, um, yeah. So the the yeah the right. Yeah, I so. Guess I'm, yeah, I forgot what I wrote. <laughs> but right, well, yeah, like, like, those stories about like, yeah, like parents and like uh, employers of color and students of color were, um, yeah, they, they wanted a white native speaking teacher, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so um, when we think about this, you get, we're not just getting, you know, in fact, because, you know, white employers know that they have to come off mm -hmm. a certain way, even though they're going to reify this stuff, they are usually very polite about it. Whereas, you know, my, not my parents, but like if you're a person of color, your parents might say, look, you need to cut that hair. Or, mm -hmm. you know, your you might have a, a teacher of color, a rare teacher of color, and you trust them and you go to them and you say, look, I really need to get a job in this field. The teacher says, look, man, you're gonna have to do this, 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 this not because they believe that, that that you are lesser but because they believe that like that's the only you got to play the game and mm -hmm. i like i get it like i sympathize with it you know not that i agree with it but i sympathize with it but it's still harmful so like what what can we do in the long run when sometimes i mean that's part of what white supremacy is right you get the people the victims to to, to do the work themselves but like how do we work against that part because it's one thing to work against or to prepare people to deal with a white employer or a white educator or whatever but to deal with their own parents to deal with the one teacher of color they trust aside from us who are talking about it like how, how do you prepare students to deal with something like that because they're worried about a legitimate risk that the people will be discriminated against and they're telling them just play the game man just play the game mm -hmm. huh. <laughs> yeah that's it's difficult because i yeah once again i don't have like a a clear-cut coherent answer for this but i mean it goes back to yeah i don't 
Give me a minute to think. Because I, I guess it goes, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I was saying it, it, it's it's something that I like. Uh, so one way, for example, that this comes into place is uh, as names, right? You know, what do you name your kid, right? Mm -hmm. Something I had to think about because although this article, this article, this episode is going to come out in March, at this point, mm -hmm. I will have a child. I don't have mm -hmm. one as the recording of this. Uh, but like we had to think about, what are we mm -hmm. gonna name this, this boy, right? Mm -hmm. We can say it's a boy now because I'm telling people that. And by the time this comes out, it will be known. Anyway, <laughs> but like, uh, what do we name him, right? Do we name him something that is, if I name Justin, anybody could have that. My wife's name is Alyssa, anybody could have that. Name. Do I wanna make a point of, naming them something more African inspired and then I'll feel proud of things and then they have to go deal with that discrimination because I made the point <laughs> or do I choose something more Anglo sounding to avoid the discrimination but then they can't really avoid discrimination right They're still black mm -hmm. so like you know so what do you do with this that the, that's like the, re the reason I bring that up with the names is that mm -hmm. it's sort of like, oh, I'll cut my braids off or something. It's mm -hmm. like, if I cut my braids off or whatever, then I might perform a better facsimile of employability. But the thing mm -hmm. is, you have to be on that hamster wheel so hard all of the mm -hmm. time to maintain the second word, the professionalism, that it eats away mm -hmm. at you. I mean, this is something that I, I'm sure you also did, dealt with for my entire life in school and in a lot of my employment is that mm -hmm. when I was younger, especially I was the only kid of color, in not my school, but a lot of my classes. And uh, it wasn't pointed out to me that often, but it was certainly a fact. And mm -hmm. I realized, and part of the reason in looking back that I've started doing a lot of this writing is I realized that a lot of what I was doing was trying to perform whiteness you know mm -hmm. the the or just the specific whiteness of my classmates mm -hmm. you know the sarcasm that you know that sort of sensibility that they were all doing and i was pretty good at it but you you can't really ever become it it's like the asymptote in calculus, right? Mm -hmm. You keep getting closer, closer, but you never quite get there. And yeah. they will let you know that you're not ever quite there. <laughs> and so, and then you try harder and you still can't get there. And that was like the dilemma of my whole life. So I guess the point is like, no, you shouldn't, like that's why it's, 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 but on the other hand, like if it was the difference between having food in your mouth and not having food in your mouth, even if you had to give up your whole soul, you better get some food, right? So mm -hmm. um, so what do we do in that sense when it's, you know, a, an employer or a parent of color? I mean, I think you just listen. You don't have to do what they tell you. <laughs> you just, you listen and you listen <laughs> yeah. and you sympathize and you, you make yeah. your own decision. You, you, you take their opinion to heart because mm -hmm. If there's someone you trust, most likely they've been through something. Mm -hmm. You know, when my aunts or my parents 
tell me stuff about what I should do to do this, this, and this. I don't think that they're always right, but I also know that they're not really completely wrong in their perspective. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I, th- I think. I think it is you take it as one of many opinions and then you make your own decision, I think, is the way to deal with that. And so when we're talking about what do we tell a student about that, we tell a student mm-hmm. that. We tell a student to do that. It's my. It's like a, now. This now to actually answer my question. You don't just do it yourself. I mean, like you have a student who is being told by an employer, like a black employer, like you need to be, you know, because mm-hmm. you know sometimes you get black people, especially who will tell black people to pull their pants up, kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know that yeah. whole thing. Um, and you have a black student or a student of color anyway, and they're hearing these messages. You can say, mm-hmm. all right, you know, I understand where they're coming from and move forward accordingly. I think that that's the only way to do it because otherwise yeah, it's just not going to work. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's interesting while your whole, your whole discussion is kind of like, how do we balance like this pragmatic need to sort of yeah, get the job and, and survive, right? And sort of this identity work, like for me, like, well, my name is obviously racialized. So like, I always, like I'm on the job market now. So I'm always imagining when, when I submit like a job application for somewhere, like they're gonna know, okay, this is a brown guy or, or some racialized guy <laughs> applying for the job. I always wonder, oh, is that gonna hurt me? Because like when I read the research, right? Like if you have, uh, well, there's a thing called resume whitening, right? So like you can change your name to make it more Anglo sounding. You change, if you're, uh, if you did like your education in another country or like you have job, uh, work experience from another country, you might omit it or, or change it. Right, so I always think about like for for racialized people, like you have there's this balancing act. Yes, do you how much of your identity are you willing to change, right, in order to have to to satisfy this pragmatic need, right, to to once again, right, to to survive, to sustain yourself. Um, yeah, but I like I like your your comment, right? It's just it's just having let letting uh, like students, letting trainees sort of come to their own, make their own decisions, right about what to do what's best for them because yeah obviously we need big structural change like we need to dismantle white supremacy and capitalism and all of that right but obviously that's not something that's going to happen tomorrow right and so we have to make these difficult decisions but i think the the important thing to remember is that you're making the decision and you're making your own informed decision right it's not based on any you're not being pressured right it's something that you feel is best for you i think is is something is maybe the sort of I guess a practical thing we could yeah suggest to people. It's funny you mentioned resume whitening. Now um, I'm not on an academic job search or anything like that, uh, but like in terms of my public face these days, as you noticed when you first when I first spoke to you. Like my name on Twitter is JBB Gerald, right? And my first publication, which came out in January, is as such. And that's, I made that choice last summer, nope, two summers ago, because um, first of all, in APA, it's just going to be my last name anyway. Uh, so it just doesn't, like, if you, no matter what my first name is, it's probably going to get cited as the letter J or JP or something anyway. Um, 
and in a way, you know, one of the ways that people flatten their identity is is initials because you know uh, initials could be if, if it's a, if your first name is racialized that is or gendered you know you you know the it's the, it's the whole story about J.K. Rowling right yeah um, I'm just thinking that <laughs> right so on the other hand and because I have four names uh, me using three three initials and a last name is both it's like now, I wasn't trying to whiten my name. My name is Justin anyway, so it's not it's not all that racialized. But uh, like, I sort of let people project onto my name what they want, and I'm using it sort of as an homage to Du Bois because of the three initials. So it, it's like my way of putting some blackness into my name without people quite being able to tell that. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that was, you know, not everybody has that option, but like, uh, because my last name is also not particularly racialized, but it's a British thing. Um, so, you know, that, that was one way for me to make that choice. Um, and I think that that is something that people can impart to students, not you must use your initials, but like, you know, think that that's even a lesson. I think that's an interesting lesson to think about people's names, right? And what it has to do with the way that they're seen. Um, because I think names are really important. I don't know. Um, so, you know, before we sign off here, um, do you think that these constructs can be fought from within? Like, is it better to fight them like you get a job and within the job you see professionalism being wielded as a gatekeeping cudgel and you fight it from there? Or is it better to fight them in the way that me and you tend to fight them, which is writing publicly about them? That doesn't mean we don't have jobs. Uh, I just mean that, you know, through our public facing work, we do the fighting or is it, is it more effective to do it within? That, that doesn't mean you don't do the other. I'm just saying, like, it, it, does more impact happen when you do the work within your work? Or is more impact happen when you turn outward and try to push? You know what I'm saying? Because if you're doing the public stuff, but in your private work, you're still using professionalism to keep people out, then what are you doing? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, I think it's a, it's a little bit of both, right? So I think the thing to remember about like the workplace, it's, it, it not only reflects like these social inequalities, it's often the site where we reproduce these social inequalities, right? So we can, we can like try to make change outside the workplace and also do it while we're in, inside, right? So just that, the, your example of your name and, and why you chose the initials, right, in, in homage to uh, Du Bois, right? So that was sort of like, an, I, that's sort of a, an example for me of how you can sort of do these sort of micro level resistance things in your own sort of professional practices or like how you promote yourself professionally, right? So I think, um, yeah, even though, well, change, resistance can be small, right, in that, in that way, right? Um, 
Yeah, well, both of us are on Twitter a lot, and that's how we kind of articulate a lot of our ideas about that. So I think, um, I think, yeah, don't underestimate public pressure. So like, even with like corporations, like if a corporation does something, like makes a offensive commercial or something, right? The, the power of protests and stuff like that, that can change sort of like the structures of, of like how the corporation chooses to advertise itself in the future, right? So, um, yeah, basically, yeah, just to repeat myself, yeah, I think public and sort of within the workplace, we can do our own resistance, whether that be micro or whether it be something more more um, visible, right? Yeah, because it's one of the big questions I have, and it's what you saw that I had written about is, you know, the, the angles, right? Like what matters, you know? Um, are we just talking to ourselves? right amongst the academics or does it or is anyone listening to us like i know that like my friends listen but that's like that's that would have happened anyway they would listen to me no matter what i said you know my family is supportive and i'm happy about that but like they would be supportive no matter what i said like if we actually want to make a change in things um how do we do that and i think like you said we have to do both you know if we are out here talking a big game, but then we get to work and we just uphold all of the values that we abhor, then, then what is the point of us? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what is the point of us? You know? All right, BJ, thanks for coming back. I uh, had, had a, you know, this is definitely a different discussion than the one we had last time because um, we went off in some different directions here and I was happy with that. So uh, thanks for joining me and everyone who's listening. I hope that you found it as interesting as I did to have the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. <laughs>